lady named Kelsey Munger writes this. She says, I'm tired. I'm tired of being a Christian. People say it's only a term, only a word, but that word feels like the lead apron at the dentist's office. It's pushing down on me from all sides, clipped tightly around my neck. It carries the weight of the hearts that have been wounded and the spirits that have been broken in the name of Christianity. It carries the weight of teenagers who have been kicked out of their homes, gay teens and unwed mothers. It carries the weight of women who have been told to submit to their abusive husbands. It carries the weight of women who question their value and their worth. It carries the weight of so many tears that have been shed after someone who is verbally accosted by a Christian. It carries the weight of scars and wounds that run so deeply they've latched onto people's identities and sense of self-worth, and I'm tired. I'm tired of being a Christian. This isn't irritation or angst, she says, it's exhaustion. As a child sitting in children's Sunday school, Jesus seemed to say, it's okay, you're welcome here. Come sit down right here next to me. And now somehow, despite it all, I can feel the divine's gentle pull again, but I'm worn out. I'm exhausted. I'm tired. This, this blogger's experience is not uncommon. Never has been uncommon, but is especially so today. Her post was considerably longer and considerably more difficult to read. A number of things she said are worth speaking about and talking about. She wasn't thinking right on all fronts by any means. But in the end, the reality is, no matter what she said in that text, agreeable or not, she's tired of Christianity. She's been wearied, been beat down. She's not departing Christianity, but she's just tired of the rancor tired of the sideways looks, tired of the quickness to judgment. It's the fact that she's questioning, I, I've been part of this. She's questioning the faith. She's questioning the existence of God. She's questioning how can God be good in the midst of suffering. And what she's received are blank stares or angry looks or shunning. We live in a day when many are weary of these things, weary of the hypocrisy that seems prevalent in the church, weary of the rigidity that's all too often apparent, weary of the so-called discernment blogs, the infighting among the church, weary of the aloofness, weary of the judgmental attitudes of many who profess to trust in Christ. And, and frankly, Christianity feels like it's grown complicated feels like it's grown burdensome. And increasingly, those who have professed their faith in Christ at some point in their life have grown tired, they've grown exhausted, and they've worn out themselves, grappling. All the Christianity has become, has become just frustratingly complicated to them. And perhaps you're one of them this morning. I know I have felt that weariness from time to time. I, I had a moment of it this week. Now, if we're honest with ourselves, do we not have plenty of moments like this lady? 
Today we come to another text reminding us in very clear terms that Christianity is far from complicated. It's far from burdensome. In fact, true Christianity should relieve the weary heart rather than creating one. And this morning, it's my joy to remind us all of some of the simplicity and beauty and wonder of of true Christianity. And I've entitled this sermon, Rediscovering the Heart of Jesus. Some have said that there needs to be a reinventing of Jesus, and that's not true. Uh, We don't need to reinvent something that's perfect. We need to rediscover the one whom Jesus has declared himself to be, the one whom he showed himself to be. We, We need to recover the heart of Jesus, recovering it because it's been forgotten, recovering it because it's been misplaced, recovering it because it's been misrepresented, and to rediscover, rediscover the heart of Jesus, we must look to Scripture and not just opinions. And so we look to the text this morning in Luke, a brief little text, a very brief little text that is sandwiched between parables pointing to the mercy of God on the one side ones we've just come out of, and then real stories of the mercies of God and real people on the other side, that which we'll be coming to in the weeks to come. It's a brief little text that serves to move the eyes of our faith away from all the damage done by authoritarian pastors, by all the debates and the politics and the hurt from church people. All the experiences of being shunned for asking real questions about life and God and eternity and pain and suffering, of feeling misunderstood and misrepresented and put in a corner or put in a box or disrespected and unfriended and unheard and and judged. And friends, if there's any in this room that I've approached being like that with, which I know there has been, please forgive me. I want to walk faithfully and gently like Christ and point you to the one in whom weariness is diminished. It's a brief little text that will serve to retrain our gaze onto the person of Jesus Christ himself, rediscovering his heart, some of the gentle, gracious grandeur of his heart towards you and towards me and towards those who are lost and those who are questioning very faith itself, the existence of God itself. I want to become familiar with the foundational requirement as well to enter the kingdom, to refamiliarize ourselves with that foundational requirement, to retrain our gaze and rediscover the heart of Christ. I want us to consider five observations from this brief little text. The first observation is this. Jesus is accessible. Jesus is accessible. They were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. Luke Luke doesn't say explicitly, but we might imagine with confidence that the, the people bringing infants to Jesus were their parents. Among all the crowds of people needing to be touched by Jesus, ministered to by Jesus, cared for by Jesus, like the lepers, big big problem people, the lepers, the the blind, the lame, the sick, the impoverished, the the demon-possessed, parents brought infants. Now, why would they do that? Well, they would do that out of desperation. Hear what commentator Dale Davis says about the children in the first century. In the ancient world, childhood was not for sissies. No need to wax sentimental over children. They had a dangerous time of it. 
It's estimated that only 50% of children lived past age 10. And if David Garland, another commentator, is right that six of every 10 children died before the age of 16, then one might surmise the number of the parents who brought infants to Jesus might well lose them in their first year or so. Perhaps that mixed emergency into their coming. Such mortality was not simply an Israelite problem. It's been estimated that in Rome, for example, 30% of all babies died within their first year. Only 49% of children lived to their fifth birthday. Only 40% of the population lived to the age of 10, 20. Children, or childhood was more desperate than cute. There was a specific sense of dependence that these parents had. Jesus was their only hope. Jesus was a holy man. He was a good teacher. He'd healed and delivered so many. So perhaps these parents simply wanted in on that healing power in the moment. Perhaps they wanted him to bless their children by laying his hand on their head, which we see in Mark's gospel. When, when, when one parent moved towards Jesus, it seems as though um, for, for whatever reason that one parent moved towards Jesus with an infant, it seemed like like then people were like, oh, oh, oh this is, let's, let's do this, let's go. And, let's, and so a crowd started again to develop a crowd of parents. And there was a commotion and there was problems because little ones cry, little ones are upset. Little, there's, there's, there's all sorts of complexities with little ones. And so there was a great commotion, most likely, and the disciples said it needed to stop. They'd look to bring an end to it. They didn't want to give these unimportant, loud little children any sort of access to Jesus. Because if it were up to them, Jesus only had time for those they deemed to be more important to him. But this is not the heart of Jesus, is it? Jesus is accessible. Jesus is approachable. And he proves it once again here. And not just accessible to those man deems worthy, but once again, he's showing himself to be accessible even to infants. Jesus is clear about it. Verse 16, he says, let the little or let the children come to me and do not hinder them. He has time for these little ones. Consider what the parents must have been assuming about Jesus here. I mean, it seems like it would not be a big deal to take an infant to Jesus. Of course, you know, we would take a child to Santa Claus and Santa Claus is approachable and kids freak out, right? But, but like Jesus... Did he really care about infants? Well, the parents seemed to think he did, even though the disciples didn't. And no one in that day would have really cared at all for these children, generally speaking, especially an infant. There must have been something about Jesus that made them think he was accessible to them, that, that Jesus was approachable. What, was it kindness in his eyes? What, was it a signal to call them over? Was it a, a knowing glance to a mom saying, Don't, we don't know. Somehow they knew, though. Somehow amid the craziness of whatever crowd was there and the uh, opposition of the disciples. And if you've been watching the series called The Chosen, you might get an idea of the, protect, the protective nature these disciples were having in light of Jesus. And I think, that's, I think that's at least partially true. There was this protection trying to keep people away from Jesus who weren't supposed to be there to protect him in some way. So Somehow, though, amid all that craziness and even the opposition of the disciples, Jesus somehow made eye contact with these parents and called them over, welcomed them in. Jesus reaches out with loving arms. The disciples put their hands up. Jesus is saying, come, join me. And he told the disciples, knock it off. 
In Mark, it actually says that Jesus was indignant with them. This is not just little, guys, come on. This was a stop, stop it. Let the little children come. Um, They'd been with Jesus for weeks on end, these disciples. They had seen the miracles. They had seen the graciousness of Jesus, the welcoming nature of Jesus. They had witnessed so much. They had seen him accessible to all sorts of people that he wouldn't have, that they wouldn't have thought he was accessible to. But, but amid the miraculous, amid the amazing teaching, amid the wonder, they had somehow forgotten the depth and the width and the height and the length of Christ's love and his welcoming nature. It's interesting to me that the disciples of Jesus did not seem approachable. Uh, and they communicated to others on behalf of Jesus that Jesus was not accessible to them. These, these infants did not meet whatever standard it was that they had established in their minds for whatever the reasons were. But no matter what the disciples said, in actuality, Jesus himself is approachable, entirely approachable, and wonderfully accessible. And he welcomed the kids in, just as he's done on numerous occasions throughout his gospel, to all sorts of people who were considered outcasts, to all sorts of people who were considered misfits and the dregs of society. Not that infants were the dregs of society, but they were a difficulty in those moments, and they weren't worth it compared to the adults. They weren't worth it compared to the blind people. They weren't worth it compared to the adult demon-possessed person. Infants were just infants, likely going to die anyway. There's no one that he withholds accessibility from. First observation. Second observation is this. Jesus is impartial. He says in verse 16, called them to him, saying, let the children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Let them come, for to such as these belong the kingdom, belongs the kingdom of God. Consider with me the fact that Luke is sticking this story between a number of other stories on purpose. He, he's, he's not necessarily telling these stories in, in, in chronological order, but he is placing them specifically to make some points. Remember, he's He's doing a thorough historical telling of eyewitness accounts for the sake of a man named Theophilus. So he's got this point in, in this spot in Luke 18 on purpose. We could go back a number of chapters and consider these details further, but let's just think about chapter 18 for a moment. In verses 1 through 8, well, who, who is it we're introduced to but a wicked judge and a persistent widow, a, a widow a widow who, you might remember, was all alone and impoverished. She was an outcast. She was an unwanted person in society. No matter what the law said, nevertheless, uh, there was no time for her. And she was held up as a model of persistent dependence on God. Now, last week, when Cale preached that most welcomed, amazing message from, the most, from this last passage— we saw two people. We saw the Pharisee, self-righteous. Not wanting to be like that guy, because certainly that guy doesn't deserve a relationship with God. But then there was the tax collector, that guy, outcast. And he was held up and esteemed 
not because he was much, but because he sought the mercy of the one who is worth everything. This guy was hated, but he was declared righteous by God because he was aware of his desperate situation and had nothing to offer God but was in desperate need of mercy from him. Now consider who it is in this little account in verses 15 through 17. It's, it's not a widow. It's not a tax collector. It's, it's an infant. Again, likely going to die. Unimportant, noisy, costly, utterly dependent, helpless in fact, and at least in those days, bothersome in the eyes of many in that day. What, what we have here is a short list of people who are the don't bothers of society. Uh, we've been watching a show on Disney Plus called The Mighty Ducks Game Changers. And if you're familiar with The Mighty Ducks, you know that they're a hockey team. So I wanted to watch it. And so this was a new, um, a, a new story. The Mighty Ducks of the 90s, or early 2000s, they had become a big team. They had become like a team championship team over years. They had developed into a dynasty kind of in Minnesota state hockey. So they became the bad guys. Back in the old days, it was the cake eaters, the rich kids, the kids that had all the equipment that they, they, were, the, they, were, the, they were the bad guys. And then all these underdogs came in. They were taught how to play hockey and do some crazy things. And they ended up beating the cake eaters. Now in this iteration, the Mighty Ducks, again, had become this dynasty and, and uh, they were then the popular kids. They were the ones that had all the equipment. They, all, they had all the banners in their arena saying championship, championship. They thought much of themselves. And so there was this one kid. There's one kid who was a good hockey player. He goes and he tries out for them and he's just not competitive in that, in that arena. So he, the coach calls him over, and the coach is a bit of a tool, and he, he um, the, the coach said, you know what, if you can't play up to speed, just don't bother. And so the mom, who is very protective, she comes out on the ice, and she confronts the guy. She takes him, takes her son off the ice, and they're devastated. Unwanted. The outcasts. She starts a new hockey team of outcasts and misfits, people who really can't play hockey. There was even a kid from Toronto with the Toronto Maple Leaf jersey on and everything, with sweet hair, which I've never had, and he, uh, he, but he couldn't skate at all. He had all the equipment, but he was just, a, he was just an out, outcast. He was a misfit. And they called the team the Don't Bothers. And of course, um, they're... They're doing very well now in the, in the they're, they're at the States now. Um, and so this, it's the same story, right? But anyway, so, so the reality is, is that there are always these don't bothers of society. Throughout the generations, there's always the haves and haves nots. There, there's, the, there's those who excel, those who don't. There's the smart, there's the not so smart. There's the rich, there's the poor, there's the accepted and those who aren't for all sorts of reasons that don't remain in the junior high hallways, but they tend to follow us through the days of our life. Friends, what we've seen throughout our time in Luke and now again in this brief eyewitness account is that Jesus does not play the don't bother game. Vintage Jesus is impartial. 
It seems that Jesus delights in desperate widows. Jesus delights in desperate tax collectors. Jesus delights in the desperation and the helplessness of the seemingly insignificant infant. Even those who are weary and doubting, wondering if there is such a thing as God on account of the difficulties that they've walked through in this life. And if there is a God, whether or not they want to trust in Him, because they're not sure He's good. Jesus is accessible, and Jesus is impartial. Third observation, disciples can hinder people coming to Jesus. Disciples can hinder people from coming to Jesus. It's a frustrating thing, isn't it, when you want to get to someone or get to something, but you're kept from getting to them or it for whatever the reason. I I have a recurring dream slash slight nightmare through the years of pastoral ministry. The, The dreams never entirely make much sense, but they usually look like me finding myself at some unknown location. Some I can't quite pinpoint where I am, but I've been asked to preach. And as the moment of preaching gets closer, I can't seem to find my way to the pulpit. I either can't find an important article of clothing, my Bible, or my notes. And it's not, if it's not these things, I get lost in the halls of whatever building I'm in. I, I've not been in this building. I don't know where I am. And I end up in some basement somewhere, walking the halls, and I cannot access the room where the pulpit is, where the people are. I can hear them singing, but I can't quite get there. It's frustrating. And I wake up never having approached the pulpit. And so I wake up frustrated and glad that it was just a dream. Now, now I want you not to get lost in interpreting my dream and helping me deal with the likely fears that are associated with all of that. But all I'm trying to say is that it's maddening, is it not, when you cannot seem to gain access to the very thing that you know you need. I think of a parent whose child has a rare disease that requires a certain drug or surgery for the child to be well, but the drug is just too expensive. It's inaccessible to them, or the insurance company won't cover the surgery, and so uh, hope for healing remains inaccessible to them. It's frustrating, and it's maddening, and it's grieving, and it's sorrowful, and it's wearying, and it's exhausting. You know what it is you need, but you seem to can't get there, and then you begin to feel like everything's stacked against you. And I think the, the weary woman that I quoted at the beginning of this message would feel that. That on account of any number of things in modern Christianity, Jesus has become somewhat inaccessible to her. In fact, she's been told so by modern-day disciples, like likely in the church, in cultural Christianity, and on social media, and it's all rather maddening to her. That unless she changes this about herself or starts thinking more like a Christian, lining up with this ideology or theological framework, that she is not welcome into Jesus' presence. And it's all rather maddening, and she's just told, move along. Perhaps she set up some roadblocks herself along the way also, but it seems all too prevalent for people to be hindered from getting to Jesus on account of the gauntlet of obstacles that the church sets up today. People feeling judged, people looked down upon, people chastised, made to feel unwelcome, shunned, 
And as much as the parents in our text must have felt the accessibility and approachability of Jesus, so do those in our society feel the hesitance and the judgment in the eyes of Christians on social media, on on television, in the workplace, across the backyard fence, or across the dinner table. You know, the, the disciples may have been with Jesus long enough to start feeling elite. They seem to have forgotten that at one time they were the don't bothers with nothing to offer Jesus. But he called them, and all he asked them was to follow him and to learn of him. Disciples of Jesus have always seemed to be able to easily forget that we not only were in need of de- or desperate need of mercy, but that we're always in desperate need of mercy. To, to know that we are the widow, not just we're the widow, we are the widow in the story. We are the tax collector in the story. We are the infant And on account of the mercy of God in Jesus, we're always welcome to come to Him. We're always invited. But somehow in the midst of all of our own comfort and our own joy and the mercy and welcoming nature of God, we can tend to be specifically skilled at setting up hurdles for others to have to jump through or jump over to to get to Jesus. Christianity is not complicated. But for anyone who has their pulse on the days we live in. We certainly have worked to make it seem very complicated rather than the requirement to come to Jesus being just absolute dependence on Jesus's mercy in a heart of repentance and faith. We incorporate all sorts of other things that seem to serve as hindrances to people coming to Jesus. Oftentimes today, Christians seem exponentially more concerned with things like lifestyle or clothes or opinions or age or intelligence or politics or whatever, rather than showing the mercy of Jesus to an increasingly angry world. Our society is increasingly filled with people who have been somehow told by Jesus' disciples, inadvertently, most likely, I would imagine, I can only imagine that it's, in, that it's is inadvertent, but that somehow Jesus is inaccessible to them unless they do such and such or this or that. But Jesus himself has said otherwise. Whether tax collectors or demon-possessed people or prostitutes or lepers or even infants in this text, Jesus says, let them come to me. Don't hinder them. So consider this question. Have you made it easy for others in your sphere of influence to come to Jesus? And how so? That's a question worth asking yourself, not just in the moment right now, but to write that. That question will be on the sermon follow-up this afternoon. This is one to press into. Have you been, however inadvertently, placing obstacles in other people's way? And what might need to change in your speech, in your conduct, in your attitude to remove these obstacles as far as it depends on you? that we would not be the reason somebody rejects Jesus. That our speech would not be the reason someone does not come to Jesus. Someone whom we entirely disagree with on on any number of fronts, Jesus would say, don't hinder them from coming to me. Don't let things get in the way that would walk alongside of them and bring them to me. Fourth observation, children are valuable. 
and welcomed by Jesus. And certainly this text is far, is more, much more about than just how we should think about children. It's, it's, a, it's, it's often a, a passage that just talks about this, this specific thing, how important children are and how much Jesus loves children. It's, it's, I think it's the main thrust of the text at all, but it is something that I want to bring out. How are we making it easy for children to come to Jesus? individually and as families and as a church. We, we've wondered about that over the last year, specifically as pastors. And as you know, we've not had Sovereign Grace kids for more than a year now. We just started nursery back up only a few weeks ago. Our, our hope, of course, is that hopefully by the time the fall arrives, we will be able to not only be looking after the, uh, the age group that we are uh, caring for now, but, but care for the age group that's just beyond that. So kids five and younger would be able to be cared for in a nursery setting in, during the worship service. Um, Jesus says, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. So we have thought about what about the ones over five? How is it, we've been asking, that we might grow to not hinder the children from coming to Jesus at Sovereign Grace Church Dayton? Or, or put positively, how are we helping them come to Jesus? Kids at three and five and nine, 14, 17. The, the children among us are valuable. Jesus has made that clear. The children among us are being called to by Jesus and welcome to him. Jesus has made that clear. But how do we clear the way for them to get to Jesus? For the adults in this church, we would rightly highlight the weekly gathering, the, the 90 minutes or so of worship and song and prayer, preaching and the sacraments and response as a key of means, as, as a key means of grace that King Jesus has given for our growth and for our nurturing and for our strengthening and for our unity and our worship of Him, not only individually, but as His body, as we gather together and meet together. There, is, there are things that we may or may not feel at any moment, but we come knowing that, that we come to Mount Zion here on Sunday mornings. We, we come, this room, we, we are coming to Mount Zion by the blood of Jesus to join a celebration, and we tell the five-year-olds and six-year-olds and seven-year-olds, you guys need to go upstairs. We, we kind of think, okay, what, what's happening here in this room Sunday after Sunday, if we get it, in some manner, is not really worth it for children. Uh, certainly, potentially not worth it for the parents of, that ch of those children. Jason Holopoulos says this, he said, the covenant community's very identity is wrapped up with worshiping its covenant-keeping God, and this community consists of believing adults and their children. Therefore, the church lives out its theology when it encourages and even expects its children to participate in this central event. Jesus said, let the children come to me, and it would be odd indeed if we sought to uphold that principle in every respect except the central act of the covenant people of God. We've been wondering over this last year if we've been inadvertently hindering the children from coming to Jesus week after week. Not entirely, of course, but at least partially. So as we have chosen to separate families during the time of week that's designed by Jesus to be immensely formative in the lives of all those in the body. Uh, consider this long quote from the book, Let the Children Worship. We are all natural evangelists for our greatest loves, 
parents do this by including children in what they themselves love. I, I sat with a group of fathers and sons last week for our annual sports get-together. The scene in the room represented this reality. A number of the boys wore ball caps, symbolizing their allegiance to a particular professional sports team. It, it would not surprise you to learn most of these boys rooted for the same team as their father. Now, how, how did this happen? Well, no doubt they adopted this team as their own because they watched their father root for this team on countless occasions. No one told the fathers to serve as their team's evangelist. They naturally did so. A mother loves art, so she organizes crafts with young children. A grandmother loves crocheting, so she shows her granddaughter the new stitch she learned. A father loves fishing, so he takes his young son along on fishing trips. We all naturally serve as evangelists for our greatest loves by including others in what we most love. I do this, you do this, we all do this. Now, the Christian loves nothing more than God. Therefore, nothing excites us more than worshiping Him, and we rightfully long for others to join us as worshipers of the triune God. In fact, this shapes and dominates our parenting. We, we are not just parents, but we are Christian parents. As worship sits center place in our lives, we naturally desire it to take center place in our children's lives. We want them to value it as we do, love it as we do, long to participate in it each week as we do because they love the Lord as we do. Our heart's great desire for our children is that they would be His children, worshiping Him with their entire lives. And the significant part of worshiping God in all of life is worshiping Him with the saints in corporate worship. Therefore, it should not surprise us that in Scripture, the covenant people of God include their children in corporate worship. Now, there's much more to speak of there, but suffice it to say, it's our increasing desire to let the children worship to not hinder them in coming to Jesus just as they watch us come to Him on a Sunday morning. See how important it is as parents and as adults in this church to actually love God, to love His Word, to love worship, to come to Jesus yourself empty and broken. And, and if your child's not there with you, your child knows nothing of that. But to be able to watch Dad cry during a worship song, or to listen to the preacher preach and respond, or to, to pray earnestly. Oh, that's a sweet, sweet thing. We want ourselves to be dependent on God, and like, like the infants, dependent on you Oh, may our children see our dependence, our need for mercy, our crying out, our singing out, our praying, our listening to the preached word, our need for Jesus to move in us, observing the enjoyment of the sacraments given to us to celebrate Jesus is accessible not just to you, but He's accessible to the children among us. Yeah, it creates some level of complication. Don't hinder them. Let them come. So we're processing this as your elders, as your pastors. He's not partial to adults only. In the worship of the gathered church, Jesus welcomes all, children included, to come to Him, to depend on Him, and to worship Him. So consider this question. Have you made it easy for your children to come to Jesus? 
or have you been, however, inadvertently placing obstacles in their way? It's, it's worth your consideration. Fifth and final observation, childlike faith receives the kingdom. It's childlike faith that receives the kingdom. If we're to enter the kingdom of God, we must do so in total dependence and trust on Him, knowing our helplessness, coming to Him empty, being like the tax collector of last week, having nothing, can hardly look up and just say, I need you, fully I need you. David Garland puts it well when he says this. He says, Jesus does not refer to some inherent quality in children, such as their imagined receptivity, their humility, their trustfulness, their lack of self-consciousness, their transparency, hopefulness, openness to the future, simplicity, freshness, excitement, or any other idealized quality that commentators often attribute to children. None of these virtues were associated with the children in first century culture, and they reflect a contemporary sentimental view of children. Now, in light of the preceding parable of the tax collector who prayed for mercy uh, for, from God out of his helplessness, Luke must have had in mind the child's total helplessness and dependence on others. We, we cannot enter the kingdom of God by means of religion or good works. We know that well. We can't, but, but we tr- try anyway sometimes and try to set up those roadblocks for people inadvertently. We cannot enter because we've been honest or a faithful spouse or a good citizen, as good as those things are. We cannot enter because we share some of the views that God has concerning marriage or gender or justice or race or life. Holding what is believed to be a biblical view of an issue will never, ever, ever qualify you to enter the kingdom of God, nor will it qualify those people who are in your sphere of influence. Only It's only when men and women, boys and girls, say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, and mean it with their whole heart and any qualified to enter. Dependent, helpless. And think about this. A small child is completely dependent on his parents for everything. The little one that's in your arms right now, absolutely dependent on you. And that's precisely how we must be towards God, to enter the kingdom. To dependently come to Jesus, to sit with Him as a helpless one in need of mercy, to learn of Him. Dane Ortland very, very helpfully states in his wonderful book, Gentle and Lowly, He says, Jesus is accessible. For all His resplendent glory and dazzling holiness, His supreme uniqueness and otherness, no one human in history has been more approachable than Jesus Christ. No prerequisites, no hoops to jump through. The minimum bar need, the minimum bar to be enfolded into the embrace of Jesus is simply open yourself up to Him. It's all he needs. Indeed, it's the only thing he works with. You don't need to unburden or collect yourself and then come to Jesus. Your very burden is what qualifies you to come. No payment is required. He says, I will give you rest. And his rest is gift, not transaction. Do something for me and I'll give you rest. We come empty. We come weary. We come with questions. We come with difficulties, all of that. Friends, may that message be the one on our lips. May that message be the one on our social media feeds. 
that people see and communicated at our dinner tables and the message that's communicated at our workplaces and in our neighborhoods and in our community groups and in this church completely. We, we must run from any hint of hindering a person in any way whatsoever from coming to Jesus to find life and freedom in the kingdom of God as a helpless, dependent creature. Ortland continues on. He says this, we do not come to a set of doctrines. We do not come to a church. We do not even come to the gospel. All these are vital, and yes, they are vital, but most truly, we come to a person, to Christ himself. Listen, it's Jesus who says, isn't it? Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. There's one command there, Come to me. And he's accessible, and he's approachable, and he's, he's saying, come, come to me. Come and find rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle. I am meek. I am lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Joy was just telling me this morning the definition of meekness. I said, well, I think it means like um, gentle. And she said, yeah, me too. But, but the, the definition is this. Enduring injury with patience and without resentment. Well, we bring, I know there's people in this room, and myself included, and my wife included, but we bring hard questions to God. And God says, come to me. He, he's able to endure injury with patience. and without resentment. We have to get ourselves together and make sure we believe right and everything. It's just, we come empty. I don't understand why that's happening. I don't get it. I don't even know if you exist, but I know that I'm helpless. And so I come to you. Jesus says, mm, yes. That's the heart of Jesus. Does, does that Jesus not sound wonderful? Do you feel tired? Do you feel that somehow your vision of this Jesus has somehow gotten obscured? That somehow he requires so much more of you than you could ever live out? Friend, he calls us to come to him uh, unashamedly and, and without all this other s- stuff that we have to do to somehow get right with. We just come to him empty and helpless to see striving and to know him, to come to Him in utter dependence, to sit at His feet, to learn from Him, to enjoy Him now and forever, to ask Him your questions, to to share with Him your struggles, your doubts about His goodness or His even existence, to come dependent, to come humble, and come helpless. And Jesus is welcoming us to come. He is not saying, "Eh, if you don't believe in me, you're out. He's saying, hey, I'm patient. Come, I want to talk to you. I want you to learn from me. I want, to, I want you to follow me. I want to show you myself. And may we not be those who get in the way of that. Rather than participating in the obscuring of the view of this Jesus in some manner, or actually hindering people from coming to him, may we introduce that gentle Jesus, that approachable Jesus to a weary and angry world, to the questioning child who, who seems to irk, irk you with the question. to a cynical adult who is abused. 
and on and on and on to introduce and remind and not obscure, but to point and to help them see this gentle and lowly Savior whose heart is for the outcast and the desperate and the helpless ones. May we rediscover the enormous heart of Jesus at Sovereign Grace Church Dayton and work diligently to remove every possible hindrance from a world who is in desperate need for a lovingly accessible Savior to rest their weary lives on. Jesus is not only accessible, not only approachable, um, Jesus is one who, um, like the picture in our text is one of Jesus, what's in your head? Jesus sitting on a rock, right? Like kind of, like it's, it's, the, it's the flannel graph Jesus. He's sitting on a rock, and there's children all around, and Jesus has a staff in his hand, likely, and, and, and he's like this. And flannel graphs don't show movement or whatever. It's an idea of Jesus welcoming children. And Jesus is not only accessible and approachable, but Jesus moves. Now, which way does he move? We come helpless. Jesus doesn't go, whoa, hey, hey, fix, get fixed. What is it that Jesus does? Moves towards us. We see that most keenly at the cross, don't we? While we were still weak at the right time, while we were still weary, questioning, hostile, enemies. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. One will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He, he moved towards us. The song Rock of Ages, an old hymn says this, Rock of Ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy riven side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Cleanse me from its guilt and power. Not the labors of my hands can fulfill the law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. And then verse 3. I know that a number of you could sing this with me. But nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. On the cross of Christ, uh, we have been cleansed. We come dependent. We have nothing to offer. We, we come helpless. And, and Jesus has made a way for, God has made a way for us in Jesus' life and death and his resurrection. The fact that we should have been the ones paying for our own sin, our own rejection of him, our own lack of loving the Lord our God with all our soul, light, heart, soul, and mind, uh, not loving our neighbors, ourselves, putting obstacles in the way of people and, and trying to be self-righteous. All that stuff is worthy of judgment. But, but, but God, while we were still sinners, died for us. He obtained us with his own blood. 
helpless, hostile. And yet his mercy is real. So he did not just sit on a rock and welcome. He, he came, he came, and he went to the cross. For the joy before him, he endured the cross so that you and I would be set free.